Hello, welcome to the Meditations for the Anxious Mind podcast. I'm Frankie, and I'll be your spirit guide on this journey. Today I'm joined by social activist Father Peter McVeary as we talk about homelessness, the housing crisis, and not getting hit by a bus. Namaste. Thanks so much for agreeing to come in here today. Really, it's an honour to have you here. No problem, my pleasure. Uh, and uh, I, I, I was just saying to you before we got in, I, you probably don't remember me at all, but uh, you see so many people. Um, I, don't worry, I'm not offended. <laughs> I had a... Uh, I did community care with you uh, in school when I was in fourth year, I think it was. And... Uh, yeah, it, it was it was brilliant. Uh, you actually asked me to stay on an extra week, which I was delighted about. Um, and uh, I, I I remember going in there in your drop-in centre. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure if, it, if you're still in the same play. I think, you, like, like, out in Ballymun, you showed us... See, I'm from a different kind of background. I wasn't really used to, like... The, the levels of kind of poverty that would be in a lot of these areas and, and uh, you you brought us out to show, show us around the Ballymun Flats and I just remember it's always stuck with me um, I remember two young lads probably about 10 9, 10 years old uh, in the stairwell and you know you know friendly lads whatever but uh, they just said how are you doing father and once once we walked past them you explained to me that you know they were they were like selling crack and it was like 10 o'clock and it's heartbreaking just just yeah. hearing that you know i had i had this kind of like sort of privileged life growing up and someone else doesn't have a chance and it's not because it's nothing to do with personality it's not it's purely just look at a draw and, and it, it was very sad and and i think experiences like that kind of instilled and my school as well like and, and like it, it instilled that kind of sense of uh trying to make things even in a even in a small way yeah we had we have four or five hundred students transition year students every year well they come and spend time in our drop-in center uh and then we bring them around some of our services, bring them out to our detox centre, which is state-of-the-art detox centre, even if I say it myself, and some of our uh, residential services. But the core of the experience is talking to homeless people and it's listening to their experiences. Uh, and that opens people up to a whole different world <laughs> to which they are totally unaccustomed. And that's the core experience of the, the week or two weeks in uh, in in our drop-in centre. It's uh, And the homeless people love to see students coming and love to talk to students because, you know, our dignity depends on our feeling, our belief that we have something to contribute to somebody else. Now, most of us do that through family or through work or through voluntary activity or a combination of those. But homeless people are always at the receiving end. Everybody's doing everything for them. They're getting them accommodation. They're getting them drug treatment. They're getting them their welfare payments. Uh, and so they never have an opportunity to give. And so they feel, I have nothing to give. And therefore, I'm, I'm of very little value. 
But in the drop-in centre, they see students coming who have everything that MasterCard can buy. <laughs> and they are coming to get something from these homeless people, which all their money can't buy. And so the homeless people feel they're making a real contribution to these young people's education. They're giving something that they're not going to get anywhere else. Yeah. And that makes them feel feel very important. And, so and they'll the, come in on a Monday morning and they'll say, oh, you have a new group of students here. Do you want me to talk to them? <laughs> I remember <laughs> and, that. You know, it's, 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 it's great for the students and it's great for the homeless people as well. It's a win-win situation for everybody. Yeah, and, and you're really uh, living proof of that kind of ethos you were talking about. Like the principle is about giving, not getting. And uh, you strike me as a man who, you know, even though like with, with homelessness in this country and where the government are at with it and you, you strike me as a man who is very happy amidst all of that even though you have the weight of the world on your shoulders and I wonder is a lot of that like do you do you feel that kind of sense of happiness from giving of yourself? Yeah, I'm very much at peace yeah with myself and with the world and I feel I'm doing what uh, God wants me to do and I am where God wants me to be at least at this moment in time so I have a real sense of, of peacefulness yeah about what I'm doing uh, there's also great satisfaction in in what I'm doing uh, you know to see a homeless person moving into their own apartment giving them the key of their own apartment and moving in and saying is this for me for the rest of my life? <laughs> it's like a dream come true for them. Uh, and just to see the joy on their face, uh, that's really, really satisfying. Our people come up to me all the time. They say, uh, how are you, Peter? And I say, who are you? And they say, <laughs> do you not remember me? I was with you 15 years ago. And I say, how the hell am I supposed to remember you 15 years later? You've changed. You, you had hair then. You're now bald. Uh, but they'll say, look, I, I lived in your hostels. I went through your drug treatment. I now have a great job. I have a house. I have a family doing really well. You know, stories like that uh, really uh, lift you up yeah. and really make you uh, believe that what you're doing is 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 very worthwhile. So, yeah, I'm very much at peace with myself. The job is difficult at times. Yeah, you meet difficult people. Homeless people are angry and rightly so. They're frustrated uh, and rightly so. Uh, and they sometimes can take that anger and frustration out on me or on the staff. Uh, but you have to realise it's nothing personal. They're just releasing the anger and frustration that they feel at the situation that they, they're stuck in. They're just releasing that. Uh, so it can be difficult at times, but uh, overall, if I was to start my life again, I'd do exactly the same. I wouldn't change anything. There's not, there's not many people who can say that in their life that they would do the exact same thing so that that really yeah. says it all and uh, one thing that struck me when I stayed uh, when I was in the uh, drop-in centre how did you get the nickname Hedge? That uh, goes back a long time, back to the 70s. Uh, I was working with young people in the inner city. We didn't have a hostel then. It was before I got into working with homeless people. But we were working with young people, very, very deprived young people. Uh, and uh, we used to take them off to, to Liverpool. Every second weekend, we'd take a group to Liverpool. And we'd go to a Liverpool match. We'd spend the weekend there in Liverpool. It was a real weekend trip for them. But in Liverpool, just outside Liverpool, there's a safari park. And we had a minibus. We would take them in the minibus. So we'd go to the safari park. Uh, and one day, coming out of the safari park, 
Uh, I said to the security man at the gate, we're taking one of your monkeys. And I pointed back to a young 14-year-old in the back of the bus who had a cheeky-looking face. <laughs> and he immediately responded, and we're taking one of your hedgehogs. Because my hair was spiky at that time. Uh, so the nickname stuck hedgehog, and then it got <laughs> reduced to hedge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, where, that's where that came from. God, that young, that young that. cheeky fellow was subsequently shot dead. But, oh, uh, God. When he was in many years later. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, that was the... That, that was where the nickname came from. Yeah, yeah. Still a full head of hair on you anyway, so Certainly who's laughing now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, I suppose, like, uh, you mentioned about the 70s, so, like, the heroin epidemic would have come in 1982 or... Came three. in in the mid-80s yeah. and then disappeared again. Yeah, so how how it, was that... Like, what, what was the difference between homelessness before the epidemic and, like, subsequently after it? Homelessness uh, before the epidemic, when we started, homelessness was the main issue was 14, 15, 16 year olds who kept running away from home. People didn't understand why they were running away from home. <laughs> the attitude of the authorities were, well, they're just bad kids. And the response should be, uh, call the police, pick them up and bring them back home again. They had no concept of the abuse and the violence and the neglect that existed in, in some homes that forced young people to, to leave home. Uh, so we, when we opened our first hostel for 14, 15 year olds and younger, uh, I was seen as part of the problem, not part of the solution, because I was seen to be encouraging these guys for leaving home. I was giving them accommodation, I was feeding them, I was buying them clothes, bringing them on holidays. So I was attacked for, uh, for, for encouraging these young people to, to leave home. So that was the issue then. Then it became, in the 80s, the drug problem hit Dublin. And uh, the problem moved somewhat to young adults with, with a heroin problem. Heroin was unknown in Ireland until then. So nobody knew anything about it. Nobody knew how addictive it was. And nobody knew uh, the health issues like HIV AIDS that can result from, from heroin use. Uh, but heroin gave these young people a terrific high. They, it was really, they thought this was the best thing ever invented. It lifted them out of the, the miserable life that they were living, at least for a few hours, and made them feel good about themselves. So they thought this was terrific. Uh, I would know whole families that were wiped out by heroin. Every young person in the in the family died from AIDS. Sometimes the parents died from AIDS. Uh, so that became then the the big issue, uh, and the response by the government was was abysmal. They 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 didn't want to know. These were poor kids in poor areas using heroin, so it didn't affect uh, the the people that they <laughs> that voted for them. So it wasn't a it wasn't a big issue. But that has become uh, that has become the one of the dominant homeless issues now is is people with a with a, with a drug problem, uh, and the drugs is every heroin. We we will wish heroin heroin. We will wish in a few years' time that we had a heroin problem again, because <laughs> heroin was much easier to deal with, much easier for you, drug for heroin users to cope with. Uh, you know, heroin 
uh, it was very cheap actually to 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 get to to get, so it didn't you didn't have to do a lot of robbing. Uh, it was much easier for the heroin users and much easier for people like us who are trying to deal with it because you could put them on a methadone program and you could help them to come off. But then crack cocaine became the. Uh, the, the problem and crystal meth is going to be the next big issue they are infinitely worse than heroin infinitely and they are destroying whole families destroying whole communities the whole drug scene is destroying this country I've always said that the drug problem in this country is far more of a threat to the security and stability of this state than the IRA ever were uh, it is really damn but it's, the damage is confined largely to poorer areas uh, that's where the addiction, heroin addiction, that's where drug addiction is, is rampant and that's where the intimidation and violence around drugs is mostly concentrated. Yeah. And I mean, that's... The main, prob- main drug problem is actually middle class people using cocaine. That's the, where the bulk of the drug uh, gang's money comes from. But they, they can afford it. They're working. They can pay for it. Uh, it's not a problem that affects uh, any, everybody else. So it's the, drug, it's the drug addict who has to rob to pay for their drug uh, uh, their, their drug habit that's uh, that, and that's largely confined to uh, to poorer areas yeah. so it doesn't get the attention that it uh, it should it should get and and it's always struck me that there is an inherent classism in drugs and and you know people who took drugs or take drugs and I've always found like you mentioned cocaine you know I can have a friend who does cocaine every week or does it even every day and they'll look down on someone who's doing heroin and they use words like junkie yeah. and you know I don't think anybody who's not an addict a heroin addict should be using a word like that because even you know even from when I was young I found it like it just felt wrong it's yeah, I would a nasty never, word I would never use that word yeah. I'd always refer to them as drug users and that's a neutral concept yeah. most of the people I know who take drugs most of the drug addicts uh, have a reason for taking drugs. Yeah, <laughs> They're, they've they've had horrific experiences in life. Sometimes horrific experiences in childhood. And they're using drugs to uh, to try and run away from their memories mm. of those experiences and to try and suppress the negative feelings that are associated with those experiences. So they're using drugs for a reason. Uh, people look at drug users maybe in the city centre begging or sleeping rough and say, why don't they stop taking drugs? <laughs> it's not that easy at all for them to stop taking drugs. Uh, all those memories and feelings uh, come flooding back and they come back with a vengeance and you have to be able to cope so to stop taking drugs those drug users heavy drug users need a huge amount of therapy a huge amount of counseling and very often residential treatment if they are to succeed in in coming off drugs we had one man came down to our detox center came off drugs came back to dublin was doing very well until his granny died he went to the funeral of his granny, found himself sitting there in the front row of the mourners beside the uncle who had abused him as a child. All the memories and feelings came flooding back. And in the middle of that funeral service, and I was saying the mass, so I was up at the altar, I saw him get up out of the bench and he literally ran down the centre aisle of the church, out the front door, and the next day he killed himself. 
You know, so for them coming off drugs is hugely difficult. They are forced, you're forced to stand still, confront your memories uh, and learn how to deal with those memories because they're never going to go away. They're with you for the rest of your life. Learn how to deal with those memories in a different way besides taking drugs. It's extraordinarily difficult. And I think most of the people who look down on drug users wouldn't be able to do it themselves at all if they were in that situation. Yeah. I think somebody who, who, who overcomes their drug addiction or who uh, has their drug addiction in control, I think they are real heroes. They have achieved something that is extraordinarily difficult and that most people in our society couldn't achieve. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it, it's funny that... Uh, People think that the drugs are the problem, but you know, for somebody like you said who's begging, who's homeless, the drugs are the solution. But when you take away the drugs, their head gets worse. They get the head gets louder, and you know, all of a sudden, killing yourself can become another solution. And uh, I suppose, like, what, what I wanted to ask you as well, Peter, is you would have seen, on one hand, you'd see the very worst cases of what drugs can do. And on the other hand, you see the worst cases of what the drug trade can do. So I wanted to ask you, what's your views on decriminalization or even legalization of drugs? Well, there are two different issues. Decriminalization means that if you're caught with small amounts of drug for your own possession, uh, you don't get prosecuted. Uh, and I'm totally and absolutely in favour of that. I think it's an awful waste of time and expense and guard the time and judges' time and prison time <laughs> bringing a, a person who has small amount of drugs for their own use, uh, dragging them through the criminal justice system. I was in court with a young man who was charged with possession of cannabis to the value of two euros. <laughs> <laughs> now, this case was remanded five or six times. The guard prosecuting had to turn up, spend the whole morning in court waiting for the case to be called. Uh, the young fellow was given free legal aid. Judge asked for a probation report. All this at state expense. I'd say that case probably cost four or five thousand euros <laughs> to uh, to prosecute. Yeah. Uh, and in the end, the judge judge gave him a slap in the hand, sent him off. But the expense of it, the guard, the time involved. So I'm all in favour of decriminalising. Uh, drugs. I think the guards should be free to go after the drug dealers. Legalising drugs, that's a different issue. I think decriminalising drugs will come in the next few years. I think there's a movement on. It's happening in many parts of the world. I think it will happen in Ireland. Legalising isn't going to happen in my lifetime. Legalising means drugs are, uh, you're, free to, uh, you're free to buy the drugs, you're free to sell the drugs, maybe under licence. Uh, depends on how you do that. I'm not in favour of the way in which cannabis has been legalised in uh, some of the United States or in uh, Uruguay or in Canada. There are anybody who's over 18 can go in and buy cannabis. I think that will lead to an increase in use of cannabis and cannabis, the cannabis that is being used today is much, much more dangerous than the cannabis that, we, that people used to smoke in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, but we have legalised one drug, methadone, 
Methadone is a highly addictive drug. In fact, it's more addictive than heroin. And it's a highly dangerous drug. More people die with methadone in their system than die with heroin in their system. So it's a highly dangerous, addictive drug, but it's available free of charge from the state to anybody who wants it, that is, any heroin user. So all you have to do is show that you're using heroin and you will be given methadone for the rest of your life, uh, free of charge by the state. That's the model I would use for legalising drugs. If somebody wants their drugs, whatever it is, cocaine, uh, whatever it is, uh, let them register as a drug user and let it be supplied free of charge by the state or at very low cost. The advantages of that are it undercuts the drug gangs. Uh, They won't go away, they'll just find other ways of making money. But it will undercut the drug gangs and it will uh, reduce the violence that's associated with the huge profits that the drug gangs are making. The downside is if you register as a drug user, you won't be allowed a driving license. Uh, You'll probably find it more difficult to get a job uh, and you won't get a visa to go to uh, Australia or to, uh, to the US. So there's a downside, but if you really want your drugs, whatever they are, yeah, I would be in favor of uh, legalizing in that, in that format. Uh, yeah. If only to take away from, like you said, the criminal gangs won't go away. But um, I mean, I remember actually again being in the drop-in center, and uh, there was a lad there, a really nice lad, and uh, he um, I won't go into detail about what it was, but basically he he got thrown off a stairwell for twenty quid. Yeah, you know, and uh, really really nice fella, and it, it you know because I. Obviously, I've I've been around drugs. I use drugs, and I have done in the past. And uh, I, but I I saw so I would have seen one kind of level of drugs and what drugs can do to people, and even what drugs did to me. But I wouldn't see you know being thrown off a stairwell for twenty quid. That's not my world, you know. So it was very uh, it was very revealing to hear that that stuff goes on. And again, you know what you said about methadone, and you know. Does methadone keep people trapped? It does, and they know that. Uh, They're dependent on the methadone. They're still addicted, except they're addicted to methadone now instead of heroin. It's still an addiction, and one of my criticisms would be that uh, the medical services maintain people on methadone instead of helping them and supporting them over time, maybe over a long time, to come off the methadone as well. Uh, medical profession, I think some of them have the, uh, the, the, the understanding that methadone is like, uh, it's like diabetes. If, you have, if you're a diabetic, you get your insulin and you, get, you inject yourself uh, every day and you have your diabetes under control. So I think they see the, the, the drugs as, uh, in the same way. If you, have a drug, uh, if you have a heroin issue, you get your methadone, you take it every day and you have it under control. Uh, and you'll do that for the rest of your life. That's yeah. what I would be critical of. I think methadone is very useful, helps people to stabilise their lives, helps people get back into employment. But I think the objective always has to be to help people to get off all drugs, including methadone. And that's where the focus uh, should be. But I, I don't think it is. So it's a, uh, yeah, it's a uh, methadone is, is, is useful. Uh, 
as you say, the, the criminality associated with drugs is generally confined to uh, poorer areas. A uh, young man thrown off fourth floor balcony for 20 euros. It's not the amount you owe to the drug no. dealer that counts. It's the principle. If you're seen to be getting away with not paying your drug dealer, then other people will say, well, I'm not going to pay either. And the drug dealer then eventually loses face and may go maybe uh, replaced by somebody else. So mm. you, the, the, the violence is an integral part of the drug trade. And if you want to progress within the drug trade, you have to become more violent than everybody else. That's how you get to the top, by being more violent than everybody else. Yeah. And that's what's happened back in the 80s and the 90s. You know, the drug dealers would kill you for a reason. <laughs> Today, these young fellows would kill you for looking at their girlfriend crooked. <laughs> the, the, the violence has escalated enormously. And most of it goes under the radar because people won't report it to the guards because they're afraid. And they won't report it to the media because they're afraid. And rightly so are they afraid. Uh, so most of it goes under the radar and is not uh, known by the general public. But there is a huge amount of violence, intimidation, threats uh, made to uh, to people who, who owe drugs. Uh, and it's not even the person who owes drugs. I had a girl with me the other day. She has six children. Uh, the father of the children owed 200 euros for drugs but he's not living with the family but they came and threatened her that if she didn't pay the 200 euro they were going to come back and smash all the windows in her house uh, so it's not just it's not just the person who owes the money that is under intimidation and under threat it's their whole family uh, and maybe their extended family as well yeah it's it's um and, and again like that's that that's where the kind of regulation w will come in as kind of a beneficial outcome. But I suppose like uh, <clears throat> what I wanted to ask you as well was like like you, we were kind of talking about the methadone. It seems like you know it's 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 obviously it serves its purpose, but it's kind of a hands off approach in a way. It's like we just give them the methadone, leave it there, don't worry about like the rest of it. And I wonder. Uh, do you feel like the neoliberal policies of like just leaving the market alone have affected homelessness? And if so, how? Oh, absolutely. It's yeah. been a disaster. Yeah, for the last 15, 20 years, government policy has been uh, to, uh, to, to transfer responsibility for housing homeless people and low-income people in the private sector, uh, particularly in the private rented sector. So the government reneged on their responsibility to provide housing and said the market will provide. <laughs> now, the market will provide expensive housing for those who can afford it, but the market is not the slightest interested in providing housing for low-income families. So it has been a total disaster. Families who couldn't get social housing are pushed into the private rented sector. Uh, demand, therefore, for the private rented sector has soared. Rents have gone through the roof. Uh, it, it's, been a, it's been a total disaster. The only solution now to, to the housing crisis and the homeless crisis is to build council housing as rapidly as possible. You know, in, two, in 1975, this country built 8,500 council houses. In 1985, and we had a recession in the 80s, so we weren't plush with money, this country built 6,900 council houses. And in 2007 and 15, 
this country built 75 council houses. Yeah. That's the core of the problem. There's transfer of responsibility for housing to the private sector, and the private sector isn't interested in low-income uh, housing. So <clears throat> we've got to go back to building council housing on a massive scale. It's the only way out of this uh, out of out of this housing crisis that we have at the moment, and and I think uh, there's that kind of quasi-social housing, which is kind of what the HAP would be, isn't it? Do you feel like the HAP is affecting? Can they say uh, well, we're not building council houses, but people are going onto the HAP or what? Yeah, well, if you go onto the HAP and you get private rented accommodation using the HAP, which is the housing assistance payment from the government to help you pay the rent because you can't afford it. Uh, if you get private rented accommodation with the HAP supplement, you are crossed off the social housing waiting list. You're no, you're considered now to be housed, but. N- very few people want to be housed in the private rented sector because they don't have any security of tenure. The landlord can come along anytime and say, I'm selling the house, you have to move out. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah, the, the, the HAP was necessary. Once they transferred responsibility to the private sector to house low-income families, they had to introduce the HAP. And now there's, I don't know how many, is it uh, about 70,000 households on HAP? Government are paying private landlords uh, to house low-income families 2 million euros every day. (laughs) Such an enormous waste of money. and they're trapped now because the HAP payment hasn't gone up uh, for the last five or six years, but the rents have gone up. So people who are in a private rented using HAP, they are having to pay what are called top-ups. So apart from the HAP payment, the landlord is demanding from them anywhere between 125 and 200 euros a month. These are often people on social welfare who only get 200 euros a week. Uh, he's demanding that top-up payment. Now you might say, why don't, why doesn't the government increase the HAP payment? Because if the government increases the HAP payment, the rents are going to go up. <laughs> so they're in a bind. They're yeah. in a trap. So again, it a goes trap back of their to... own, of their own making. Uh, so the the solution we have to uh, build social housing on a on a massive scale. There's lots and lots of empty buildings around the place. We've got to bring those back into use. We've got to find every possible way to uh, increase the stock of, uh, uh, of, of housing, particularly affordable housing. Government keeps saying supply is the problem. Uh, supply isn't the problem. There's lots of supply of, of expensive housing and expensive apartments. In fact, in one block, uh, owned by a big international investment fund, half the apartments are empty mm. because people aren't prepared to pay the uh, the rent, and yet the uh, the owners don't want to reduce the rent because that will reduce rents across the board. Yeah. Uh, so there's plenty of uh, of uh, there's plenty supply of expensive housing. The supply isn't it's it's a, f- a supply of affordable housing is the problem. That's what's in short supply, and that's what has to be uh, has to be tackled. And and the government willpower isn't there at the moment. Well, they have very good plans. Uh, 
are those plans going to work? I'll wait and see. Hmm. Is, is I, have my, I have my doubts. <laughs> you wouldn't <laughs> be alone there. I will wait and see. Yeah. I won't uh, uh, I won't criticise them too much at this yeah. stage. Uh, give me, come back to me in a year's time and I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. And is, is there any particular party you think could instil a certain amount of change more so than the rest of them? Well, Fianna Gáil and Fianna Gael have been... Uh, have been uh, committed to the neoliberal model where the private sector is supposed to supply everything. I mean, the private sector in Ireland supplies nearly everything. You know, uh, uh, residential nursing homes for elderly people, almost all private. Childcare is privatised. Even the bin collections in Dublin have been privatised. There has been that neoliberal model says, privatise everything. The market will provide cheaper and more effectively and more efficient than the and the state can provide, and it might be it might be true if you're building motorways, but it's not true if you're providing basic human services for people. Uh, so, uh, is there another party? Uh, I don't know is the answer. Mm. Uh, I think one of the people who knows most about the housing crisis is Owen O'Brien from the Sinn Fein. If I was if I was Taoiseach, I'd make him minister for housing, mm. regardless of what party was in power. Uh, but uh, Sinn Féin have never been in power. Uh, they can uh, when you're in opposition, you can say all the right things. So we ju- we just we just wait we'll have to see. We'll, we'll have wait, to wait, we'll wait and see. see yeah. I think I think as well. Like part part of the problem is kind of viewing housing as a commodity. Like if I if I go downstairs <laughs> to the Londis there. And I buy a chicken fillet roll. I'm not going to starve to death if it goes up to five euro. But like you know, if a like if housing does the same, people people are dying. They're not able to afford housing. And do you feel like um, since since the COVID, since the lockdown kicked in, how how has homelessness changed? A lot of homeless people are mental health deteriorated because COVID closed all the support services mm. that homeless people depended on. It closed drop-in centres. Our drop-in centre was closed. It's still not fully open. Uh, advice centres were closed. AA meetings, NA meetings were shut down. Uh, drug treatment centres were closed. Uh, so all the support services were withdrawn. So homeless people mm. had very little support Uh so and their, their mental health deteriorated, their addiction deteriorated uh, because they couldn't access uh, treatment. So it had a, a very detrimental effect on, on homeless people, yeah. I, I know people who were waiting six months during the lockdown to get into a treatment centre. And um, even with like detox beds, I was talking to someone who was saying like, there's there's only something like, I know you, you guys have a detox centre if I'm not, mistaken but uh, there's something like only 20 detox beds on the north side and none on the south side or something uh, there's very few detox beds detox is where the bottleneck is there are treatment centers uh, but the bottleneck is in getting a detox to get into a treatment center you have to be drug free because treatment is about counseling uh, and you can't counsel somebody if their feelings are messed up with drugs. So you have to be drug free. Uh, and the, the bottleneck is is in the detox. Yeah, there are num- I don't know how many detox beds there are in, in Ireland, but <laughs> there's certainly, I don't think there's 50 detox beds in the whole of Ireland, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so it's, uh, that is where the, that's where the bottleneck is. And, and uh, 
how do you feel like you know i suppose what what like you you have a treatment center as well mcvary's run a treatment center and 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 then two detox units as well i think and uh i could be wrong there yeah we have four treatment programs we have we have a detox center which is primarily for coming off methadone But if you're taking tablets, and a lot of drug users now are taking tablets, it's a very popular form of drugs, you can't go into the detox centre. Uh, there's a fear of going into having a ben- what's called a benzo fit. Uh, and so the HSE won't allow us to take anybody in uh, who's on tablets. But we have a stabilisation programme where they can go and come off the tablets under medical supervision. So they can do the stabilisation, come off the tablets, then they can go into the detox, come off the methadone, then they can go into a treatment centre and get the counselling that they need. And we have a day programme for people who are progressing towards either the stabilisation or the detox. So it's a day programme. They come in every day. They have, for a few hours every day, they get uh, counselling of of sorts, uh, uh, appropriate counselling for somebody who's still using drugs. And uh, they get the encouragement and the support to to continue on the the path towards uh, towards coming off drugs. So you have kind of every progression covered there. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's brilliant. And... um, how do you think, uh, do you think, we were talking about housing a minute ago and um, like, and on, on, the, on the surface of it, it sounds like a stupid question, but how do you feel like with the rise of housing prices, how much, because everyone wants to point at mental health and addiction, which are obviously two facets of homelessness, but how much of it is the housing crisis? Well, if you're if you're homeless for years, as many people are, you're pretty depressed. I always say, you know, if uh, homeless people weren't depressed, there'd be something wrong with them. <laughs> <laughs> you, you should be depressed. Of course, you're depressed. Uh, and in most homeless people I know have from time to time uh, considered suicide because you look at where are you? you're living on the street, you're living in hostels year after year. You don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. You don't see when you're going to get out of this uh, this mess that you're that you're in, uh, and so it's uh, it, it, there, there's very little hope there. So yeah, it's 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 a housing thing has created mental health, it's created addiction. I know people who first use of drugs was when they went into hostels mm. where drugs were in their face. Yeah. And it's, so it's uh, uh, yeah. So the the housing has a huge. Uh, we think of mental health as being a mental problem, and it is a mental problem. But it's created often and certainly aggravated uh, by homelessness. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you were you were talking there about like um, I, I think a part of that as well. And and you just see people on the streets, and they just look so dejected and. Um, I would imagine a huge part of that would be like how they're treated as well, like both by, you know, obviously law enforcement, the guards, but by people. And what do you think the public's perception, what what are they getting wrong about homeless people? Uh, what they see is the surface. They see the addiction. They see the sleeping rough. Uh, what they don't see is the underlying uh, uh 
the underlying cause of that. Most all homeless people have the same dreams, the same hopes, the same desires as the rest of us. And as I say, the only difference between that homeless person who's sleeping rough or begging, the only difference between that person and me is that their start in life was probably a disaster. And their path through life has been pretty much of a disaster as well. That's the only difference. So I think we need to see homeless people as ourselves. It's not us and them, it's us. There is no them. They are us. They are part of us, except they have had tragic uh, experiences in their life, which has led them on this, on this, on this path. Mm. And we have to remember also that some of those who are sleeping rough uh, and some of those who are begging are drug free. A lot of homeless people are drug free, but uh, you don't you don't know that they won't go into hostels because hostels are full of drugs. And if you don't go into a hostel, you have no address, you don't get paid. Mm. <laughs> welfare, you don't get any welfare payment. So you got to beg. So some of the people who are who are begging or sleeping rough are, uh, are doing it for their own safety, for their own uh, uh, well-being, because they don't want to go in midst... Uh, they want to go into somewhere where people are using drugs in front of them, people are offering them drugs, maybe people are threatening them to buy drugs off them. Uh, yes, some of those people sleeping rough are uh, could be lawyers or judges or doctors if they're <laughs> if, uh, if if things had changed a little bit in their in their growing up experience. And and do you think uh, is it a what what do you think? Because I've I've been told by a lot of people who had first hand experience um, like that that like you said, hostels can be a lot more dangerous. Is part of that reason, you know, you can't really, I don't think, you know, this is my uneducated opinion, but I don't think you can really look at the hostels themselves and how the hostels are run more so. You have to look at, like, how the government are treating the problem. They're going, no, we'll just give them a place. There might be a security guard there who comes in and checks every once in a while and we'll just leave them at it. And a lot of the time, that's not to do with how it's run. It's to do with the whole hands-off approach again. It's like we just kind of leave, it will absolve any responsibility. Well, there's different kind of hostels. There's hostels run by private companies and they're in it for the profit. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's no key working usually in those hostels. It's simply you provide them with a bed for the night and you make sure that the place isn't burnt down. That's about it. But most of the hostels run by voluntary organisations like ourselves in the Simon community and, uh, and, and Focus Ireland and uh, they do their best for homeless people. Now, people with a drug problem also have a right to have somewhere to stay. (laughs) They have a right to a a bed for the night. The problem with our system is there's no distinction between those who have a drug problem and those who don't have a drug problem. They're all lumped together. Mm -hmm. And so you have people who have never touched a drug in their life sharing a room with three people who are smoking crack cocaine. That's a scandal. And the reason for that is simply uh, money. It's much cheaper to put four people into a room than to put one person into a room. But I always say, if we want to respect the dignity of homeless people, they all should have their own room. 
uh, in emergency accommodation or at least their own lockable partition space where they can go in, lock the door, know they're not going to be attacked during the night, know their belongings are still going to be beside them in the bed in the morning when they wake up and if somebody is using drugs in the next partition, well, it's nothing to do with them, it doesn't affect them. I think that's what we require, but that is obviously far more expensive. You buy a house and you have six rooms and you put uh, two bunk beds into each room, you can accommodate 24 people. If you buy a house with six rooms and you want everybody to have their own room, you're only going to accommodate mm. six people. So it's far more expensive, but I think it's, uh, it's important that we do that because most people's experience of homeless services is uh, the emergency accommodation when they first become homeless. And if that's a bad experience for them, it may prevent them returning to homeless services uh, for support in the in the future. Yeah, and, and, and how would you, like, because there'll be people listening to this and, like, I, I'd imagine now it's probably easier than ever to, to become homeless, you know, people have had no experience with homelessness even. So I'm sure there'll be people listening to this who are... Like to put it in a weird way, like in their last thirty days of being housed, yeah. you know, and they might end up being homeless. What what advice would you give someone who's first time homeless to be safe? And what what's the best way first, to go? If you're facing homelessness, get on to the local authority before you become homeless. Let them know that this is about to happen, so they're forewarned, uh, rather than wait until the until the last minute. If you are facing homelessness, you're in serious, serious trouble. Uh, we dealt with a young man. He had a part-time job. He was paying 900 euros a month for his rent. The rent went up uh, substantially. He wasn't able to pay the increased rent from his increased uh, from his wages, and he ended up in our homeless hostel. A young fella, never touched a drug in his life, working, uh, ended up in homelessness. We had another single father with two children. Uh, two lovely children doing a great job, never missed a month's rent in his life. Landlord comes along and says, I'm selling the house, you have to move out. Self and two kids become homeless. Mm. Uh, so homelessness, as is frequently said, is only one paycheck away. If you lose your job uh, and you become unemployed or become long-term ill, uh, you are going to be unlikely to be able to pay the rent or pay the mortgage, and you will very likely end up in, in homelessness. Uh, so it's 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 something that can affect everybody. It's not homelessness isn't just the drug user and the person sleeping rough on the street that you see. Homelessness is is affecting now a, a huge every social group really. Uh, you know it's it's yeah it's it's and it's the the new the family homelessness now has become the 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 critical issue the homeless person right you can offer them a bed in a hostel but you can't do that for a family you have to give them an hotel room or a bed and breakfast or something not i mean seven or eight years ago there's no such thing as homeless families they were all accommodated in social housing but we stopped building social housing now they're homeless uh, and, and that's so we've uh, we've had I would guesstimate about ten thousand children over the past seven or eight years who have experienced homelessness and the consequences of homelessness on them are well documented. They become depressed. They become uh, uh, they become stressed out. They they lose interest in school. 
they uh, it damages them emotionally psychologically educationally damages them in every way and while children are resilient and many will recover some of those who are now in homeless or in homeless accommodation will end up in our hostels and will end up on drugs and in prison and and it's it's so sad because i, I actually used to work in a hotel so i saw a little bit of how it was run and uh when I came in there, I saw that like five or six rooms in the hotel were like dedicated to homeless families. And I was like, oh, that's that's nice that they're doing that. And then I found out the reason why they're doing it is because, you know, it was explained to me like they're, they're happy to do that because the council have are paying for the rooms all through the year. So they don't have to worry about selling those rooms. And, you know, I was saying as well, and obviously I'm not going to mention the hotel. It was good in some ways, but like a lot of the staff would look down on the homeless families and I remember getting talking to, to one homeless family there and the two kids were the nicest kids I've ever met you know really polite never shouting you know was, and it's just so sad to see that you know and you'd see them going off in their school uniform to school and, and stuff like that and to see like I wonder how many kids are in that situation and nobody in their class knows and it's it's just um, it's really sad What 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 do you I suppose social housing is the only way forward with that. Is there any other solutions for, for homeless families? Well, we need more housing, full stop. <laughs> and uh, the, the private sector is not going to build low-cost low housing. So the only response is for the state to provide low-cost housing. So the uh, state have got to up their game uh, in terms of uh, providing uh, low-cost housing. That's it. There is no, there is no other solution. Now they can do that by building, or they can do it by renovating derelict buildings, of which there are hundreds of, well, tens of thousands, <laughs> in in the country. What they sometimes do is either buy them, buy houses on the private market, uh, which of course means that first-time buyers are. Uh, are restricted then that's another that's one house that a first time buyer can't buy mm. so they're competing with first time buyers they're not adding to the stock of housing so they're buying housing they're leasing housing enormous expense uh, and again that's not that's not increasing the stock of of housing in Ireland we've got to increase the stock of housing uh, so that those who are on low incomes, uh, there is housing going to be available for them. And and whenever um, you know, whenever council housing was erected in the past, a lot of the time you look at places like Darndale, where it's all council housing, or or like you were saying, Ballymun, um, and that in itself can create social problems. Do you feel like? If social housing is to be increased or whatever, do you think it should be spread out amongst everywhere? Well, I think you could take a, a site and you could build 300 houses on it. And I would say, you know, maybe a quarter of them would be social housing. A quarter of them would be affordable housing. Mm. That means families who are working, but who just can't afford the exorbitant rents that are uh, that are being demanded today. So you could have a quarter affordable housing. You could have a quarter maybe old folks uh, housing. You could have a quarter student accommodation. You can get your mix 
in that way, you don't have to buy, you don't have to build a big monolithic uh, social housing complex. Though I think in the past, the problems associated with social housing complexes were due to lack of facilities and lack of services. I mean, they built Ballymun for 15,000 uh, uh, households. One swimming pool. Yeah. One swimming pool for teenage kids growing up in Ballymun. Of course you're going to get problems. And they nearly didn't build a swimming pool. <laughs> they were changed their mind and were going to not build it, only the local people uh, put pressure on them. Uh, so that's, I think that's primarily the cause. You look at Tala. Tala was built huge big. There wasn't a school in Tala. There wasn't a bus service to Tala. There wasn't a shop in Tala when it went up. There was no services. You look at Moy Ross down in Limerick. When Moy Ross was built, the nearest shop was one mile away and there was no bus service. Yeah. <laughs> of course, when you they build... They get really good at walking, wouldn't they? <laughs> when you build social housing, housing for low-income families who don't have a car usually, when you build uh, housing for low-income families and don't provide services, of course you're going to get uh, problems. I, I, I actually wanted to ask you about Ballymun as well because I know, I know you're living out there and... Uh, I was talking to a fellow from Ballymun and he was kind of telling me a bit about the history and I think it was like 1986, you'll be able to correct me on it, but there was a surrender grant of £5,000 offered to people. So I think that would have been just around the time of the heroin epidemic. And then did that create like a lot of people left Ballymun and then people from Port Trans Psychiatric Unit were kind of just dumped into the flats that were empty. That was a problem that uh, existed all over the social housing estates in, in Ireland. You could, uh, a tenant of a social housing estate could purchase their house uh, if they if they had the money to do so. And that generally, that's people in reasonably good employment. So you denuded the estate of people in employment because they got the grant, they moved out, they bought the house. Uh, then they subsequently would sell the house. No, they got a grant to move out, actually. Yeah. Uh, the idea behind that was uh, that it saved uh, it, it saved uh, the local authority from having to pay maintenance because they own the house now. Uh, so, well, there were two schemes. One, you could buy out the house, or you got a grant to move to move somewhere else. The grant to move somewhere else and buy your own house somewhere else. Uh, meant that a lot of the people uh, who were in employment, who were uh, very stable, left the, the estate and moved somewhere else. And that left a, a higher concentration of unemployed people on social welfare, uh, which is not a healthy uh, concentration of, of, of people in any, in any uh, neighbourhood. You need that mix yeah. uh, to, to give the community a life. Uh, yeah, so it was, uh, it was. And for those who were able to buy their house, that was great for those who wanted to buy their house. Uh, and they lived in it now and they owned it. And they, 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 the thinking behind that was that the local authority no longer had to maintain the house because they owned it, so they had to maintain it. So it saved the local authority uh, maintenance. The problem was that it, it took one social housing unit out of the system and it wasn't replaced. So if you had uh, 100 houses, social houses, and 40 people bought their house, that meant there were 40 less social housing units available for others coming along uh, down, the, down the road. So it had advantages for the individual, but it was 
detrimental to the community. Yeah, and and like you said, it was the people who were maybe more educated or had a higher education. Maybe they went to college or they had they they were working, and those were the people who left. And uh, I think that would have happened as well a bit in Sheriff Street in the eighties, and. Uh, so I, I just find all that stuff really interesting because it's almost as if uh, the council or the government or whatever socially constructed poverty in these areas, but just through, you know, focusing on money and uh, even just focusing on the individual themselves rather than collective. Yeah, I think in those days the focus was let's build houses. Now, I think nowadays we realise that you can't just build houses, you have to build community. Mm. And that's a totally different uh, mindset. But in those days, it was people need housing. Let's put up housing. Let's put it up wherever we can. Let's put them in. They were numbers. Uh, people were numbers uh, allocated to, to housing. There wasn't any sense of building community. Yeah. People had to do that themselves. Uh, and very often, they didn't have the resources uh, to, to be able to build community uh, very effectively. And hopefully the mistakes will be learned from, but I doubt it. Um, uh, just to change things up a bit, um, so you're obviously a Jesuit priest, uh, an author and a social activist for homelessness. And uh, how much do you feel like, I wanted to ask you, do you think like being a Jesuit priest, if, if you weren't a Jesuit priest, would you still be helping the homeless or did they kind of go hand in hand? I don't know It's uh, what would happen if I wasn't a Jesuit priest. Being a Jesuit priest meant I didn't have to earn an income. I mean, I'm supported by the Jesuits, so I was free to do what I'm doing. If I had a family uh, and had to have a job, uh, maybe I'd be more reluctant to go into areas like the Ballymun or the inner city. Uh, you know, if I had a nice big car, uh, I, I wouldn't... Uh, I wouldn't want to be living in Ballymun. You'd be looking out the window every day to see whether the car was still there or not. <laughs> and someday it wouldn't be. Uh, as one fella said, he was coming up to visit a family in Ballymun and he said to a young fella, I'm parking my car there. Do you think it'll be safe? Do you think it'll be still there in the morning? <laughs> and the young fella said, Mr... You don't have to worry. No matter where you park your car in Dublin, you'll find it here in Ballymun in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm, I was free. I'm free. As a Jewish priest, I'm free to go places that I mightn't be as free to do, go if I had a family to look after. I'm free to do things which I mightn't be as free to do if I had to earn a living. Uh, so, yeah, it's been very uh, beneficial for me to... Uh, to be a Jesuit priest and to get involved in this sort of uh, in uh, work. Yeah, and and one thing that kind of struck me as well, and you know, please God, it won't be for a long, long time. Who, what, once you, once you kind of pass away, like in fifty years from now, I say, <laughs> uh, where, like, who, what comes after you? Because you're well, we have an organisation now, and the organisation mm. is largely independent of me, and we did that deliberately. About 15 years ago, uh, I was everything. I, I just did everything. If I had fallen under a bus, the whole organisation would have collapsed. 
but now, no, we have a CEO now. We have an administration team. It's largely independent of myself. Uh, I have nothing to do with the org- with the running of the organisation anymore. And that was a deliberate uh, choice that we made to ensure that uh, when I pass away, <laughs> uh, the organisation will continue. As well as that, I... the. Or- the organisation now is very large. You know, we have 25 hostels, 1,000 homeless people every night in the hostels. We have about 500 apartments. We are providing social housing all over the country. Uh, it's got too big for me to manage. I wouldn't have the skills to do that. And I wouldn't have the interest mm. in all the regulations, the bureaucracy and keeping track of the finances and filling out all the forms that you have to do. Uh, that, that's not for me, you know. I'm much happier working directly face-to-face with homeless people. Mm. So the organisation now is on a very strong footing. And uh, if, if, when I pass away, uh, it's, it won't, the organisation will continue. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that makes a lot of sense. Like even the word red tape, it's oh, that's my biggest fear. Red tape, I don't like it. Um, and so the takeaway message there is when you're crossing the road, Dublin buses move slower, <laughs> just in case. But um, what what's your if you could say one thing to the public in general, what what would it be? Hey, I think we need to all. Uh all break out of our own little bubbles and realise that I we all live in our own world and there's worlds out there uh, that other people live in. Uh, the world of homelessness, for example, the world of social housing, the world of uh, unemployment. There are other worlds that people live in and uh, we are largely isolated from those worlds. I think what we need to do is to break out of our bubbles and interact with those worlds. So, for example, if I'm living in Black Rock and I'm working in Balls Bridge and I'm shopping in Grafton Street, I might never actually meet a poor person, might never actually interact with an unemployed person, perhaps. Uh, So I think we need to realise that there is no us and them in this world. There's only us. And we're all... We're all together in this except our circumstances are uh, are very different and usually through no fault of our own yeah yeah well well i think that's a that's a great place to leave it but uh peter thanks so much for coming on you're you're such a big inspiration to a lot of people you know and i know that's not what you're in it for um but uh yeah really really appreciate it and appreciate all the work you do so thanks for coming my pleasure thank you thank you